welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 303 and is live-streamed on January 24th, 2017. This show is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and iX Systems. Joining me this week and every week is our host, the admin, the organizer, and the explainer, Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hello, everybody. How are you today, Wes? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you for waiting for me. I know it was kind of a trial to get up here, uh, but I'm back. You're back. How was your vacation? It was good. This is our second trip to Key West, and we were there for five nights, and we had a really good time. Uh, we plan to go back again. Oh, that's great. Um, well, I'm glad you're back. Should we uh, dive into this? We've got a big show this week. Yeah, there's a lot to cover. Let's get started. All right. Well, our first story, it looks like there's an Ansible vulnerability. Uh, let's dive right in. Yes. Um, for some background, Ansible is an open source automation engine that automates, automates cloud provisioning, configuration management, and application deployment. Once installed on a control node, Ansible, which is an agentless architecture, connects to a managed node through the default open SSH connection type. Now, some background. Similar tools are like Puppet, Chef, Salt, Stack, CF Engine. And I actually played around with Salt for a while, for about three or four days, until I went to give Ansible a try. And what I was trying to do in Ansible over those three to four days, I got done with, sorry, the three or four days I spent with Salt, I achieved more in half a day with Ansible than I did with Salt. Oh, wow. Now, That's a big deal. I, I know. Some, some Salt lovers are going to say, listen, you didn't really do it right, but I'm sorry. Uh, for a newbie, get, getting started quickly is very important, but we, did, we digress. So the summary of this uh, vulnerability is that command execution on Ansible controller from host which, in effect, is a remote vulnerability. This is not a good thing to have. No, it is not. So, CompuTest notes, this is not a full audit. There might be other issues. The affected versions are less than 2.14 and less than 2.21. I'm now in 2.2-something. I think I'm patched. I'll have to check later. So, a big threat to a configuration management system like Ansible, Puppet, Salt, Stack, and others is compromise of the central node. In Ansible terms, this is called the controller. If the controller is compromised, an attacker has unfettered access to all hosts that are controlled by that controller. As such, in any deployment, the central node receives extra attention in terms of security measures and isolation, and threats to this node are taken even more seriously. And so in, in the Ansible way of working, this would just be the, the place where your Ansible configuration is and where you run Ansible commands that then go out SSH and configure your host, right? Correct. Think of it as spub and, sorry, hub and spoke. And basically, uh, all, all the spokes are the uh, clients that you have, all the servers you're controlling, and the, the hub is, is Ansible itself. So you ruin the hub. Basically, you've ruined all the other systems. Yikes. Yeah, this, is, this was a big deal. It's a patch, but it was a big deal. Um, 
fortunately for, for Team Blue, and I had to ask what Team Blue was. Team Blue is a defense team. Team Red is always the attackers. In the case of Ansible, the attack surface of the controller is, is pretty small. Since Ansible is agentless and based on push, the controller does not expose any services to the hosts. So, in effect, if you're on a host uh, and you've compromised it, you can't get to the controller. You have to wait for the controller to come to you. And that's when the attack happens. An interesting bit of attack surface, though, is in the facts. When Ansible runs on a host, a JSON object with facts is returned to the controller. The controller uses these facts for various housekeeping purposes. Some facts have special meaning, like the fact Ansible Python interpreter and Ansible connection. The former defines the command to be run when Ansible is looking for the Python interpreter, and the second determines the, an the host Ansible is running against. If an, if an attacker is able to control the first fact, he can execute an arbitrary command. And if he is able to control the second fact, he is able to execute on an arbitrary Ansible-controlled host. This can be set to local to execute on the controller itself. Oh, interesting. So... The attack vector is attacking and controlling a host and then using that to launch an attack on the controller, which then can uh, attack other hosts. So, Right, and from what you've just said, people using Ansible may not be expecting that because they, they may think their controller is secure from that vector. Yep, exactly. So because of this scenario, Ansible filters out certain facts when reading the facts that a host returns. However, we have found six ways to bypass this filter. So I'm just going to give a very brief outline of what these attack vectors are, but you can read more about it in the document. So bypass one, you can add a host. Ansible allows modules to add hosts or update the inventory. This can be very useful, for example, for, for instance, when the inventory needs to be retrieved from a LAAS platform, like the AWS module does. If we're lucky, we can guess the inventory host name, in which case the host vars are overwritten and they will be in, eff in effect at the next, next task. If host name doesn't match inventory host name, it might be executed in a play for the next host group, also depending on the limits set on the command line. Um, so, so in effect, you may not, you've compromised the host, and what you want to do is you want to compromise another host. And so what you do is return information back to Ansible saying, hey, listen, the next host, let, let's try this host. Because if your host name is like, db01 you can be pretty sure there's probably a db02 maybe a db03 oh, right yeah exactly so what they do is they guess at what they guess at what the host names are so uh, bypass number 2 conditionals there's a lot of conditionals when you're running ansible you you, you can have conditionals in templates you can have con get conditionals in playbooks and this is the next uh, bypass ansible Actions allow for conditionals. If we know the exact contents of a when clause and we register it as a fact, a special case, a special case checks whether the when clause matches a variable. In that case, it replaces it with its contents and evaluates them. So 
you may not want to install Apache on a server because it's not an Apache server. So you say install Apache when this is in the Apache group, for for example. That, that's generalizing it. But mm-hmm. basically, you can override conditions set by Ansible for doing or not doing certain tasks. Now, the next thing is... Uh, template injection in stat module. Ansible has a concept of templates. So you may have a a virtual host definition in in Apache. And instead of hard coding the IP address, you put uh, curly brace, curly brace, public IP, close curly brace, close curly brace. And that will substitute the actual value from your configuration. Right. So that way in like a YAML file, you can just specify things or pull it dynamically from the facts from the host, right? Correct. And it is a a YAML file. Exactly. So these values are defined somewhere in the Ansible host, and this particular bypass lets you override those uh, variables. Um, The template module or action merges its results with those of the stat module. This allows us to bypass the stripping of magic variables from Ansible facts because they're at an unexpected location in the in the results tree. Now, I didn't read much more into that because I'm not quite I'm not at all familiar with the stats module, so I didn't go into it any further. So, on to bypass number four. You can have template injection by changing the Jinja syntax. Uh, all your templates end with .j2, and what they're doing is is they're saying if you change the syntax, you can inject stuff that way. So remote facts always get quoted. Set fact unquotes them by evaluating them. Unsafe proxy was designed to defend against unquoting by transforming Jinja syntax into Jinja comments, effectively disabling injection. So this one, I'm going to have to read up on a bit more because I know how template injection works and I know the Jinja uh, Jinja syntax, but I'm not quite sure how this one was going to work. Yeah, it's interesting. And always, like, you know, these uh, these kinds of escaping things, when you have the... It can get nuanced. I'm glad I don't have to evaluate it. Mm-hmm. So, bypass number five. Template injection in dict keys. Uh, strings and lists are not... are properly cleaned up, but dictionary keys are not. So what they're doing is there's a dictionary key and they're overriding it because it's not cleaned up properly, and that that allows them to set a a dictionary key to whatever value they want. So next time that dictionary key is referenced, boom, it's the attacker's value. They've got that value. That's not a good thing. So bypass number six, template injection using safe eval. There's a special case for evaluating strings that look like a list or a dictionary item. Strings that begin with curly bracket or uh, square bracket are evaluated by safe eval. This allows us to bypass the removal of Jinja syntax. We use the whitelisted Python to create a bit of Jinja template that is interpreted. This, too, is really obscure to me. I've got to read up more on this and find out if, if, this is sub, if I'm subject to anything like that on my templates. But I don't think I am, especially since it's already been patched. But, yeah, we got to hmm, – this, this is very clever – it is very clever, and I can see, you know, I'm, I'm sure I've written some code like this where you consider some angles, oh, yeah, you know, well, I think that, that should be fine. We already have this Jinja protection, not realizing that, oh, here's a here's an unsafe path. You can bypass that. It's a lot of 
it just goes to show how many times, how many ways, even when you're being diligent, creative, clever people who are looking for vulnerabilities can find them. Yep, exactly. So CompuTest is not aware of any mitigations short of installing fixed versions of the software. So basically what they're saying is there's no way around this. Patch your shit. That's what they're saying. Ansible has released new versions that fix the vulnerabilities described in this advisory. Version 2.14 for the 2.1 branch and version 2.21 for the 2.2 branch. They go on to mention some very interesting things at at the end of this advisory. The handling of facts in Ansible suffers from too many special cases that allow for the bypassing of filtering. We found these issues in just hours of code review, which can be interpreted as a sign of very poor security. However, we don't believe this to be the case. The attack surface of the controller is very small as it consists mainly of the facts. We believe that it is very well possible sorry. We believe it is very well possible to solve the filtering and filtering effects in a sound way, and when this has been done, the opportunity for attack in this threat model is very small. Furthermore, the Ansible security team has been understanding and professional in their communication around this issue, which is a good sign for the handling of future issues. As an Ansible user, I like hearing that. I really do. I, I do too. You know, I, um, I've worked with other systems. I've worked with Puppet and Chef, and I've tried Salt a little bit, but I keep coming back to Ansible, especially for my own systems, uh, systems where I don't already have a huge configuration management infrastructure so it's really nice to hear that they're doing things the right way yes of course you know all, all projects are subject to vulnerabilities but the fact that they're they're being open about it they're working on these and it sounds like they have a good model and that they take these things seriously all right that's everything for the ansible thing we're pretty much done with that now um I'm glad to have read the details of this. I know some in the chat room have said that it sounds like pretty bad code, but I don't think so. This is very specialized stuff. And like like they said, it's a very small attack vector. They're going to be cleaning up. They have cleaned it up, and I'm sure we're going to see some more patches in the future. Okay, thank you very much for that uh, interesting explanation. I'm glad to hear they're getting things fixed, and uh, we'll have to stay tuned for more results from Ansible in the future. And uh, with that, that brings us to our first sponsor, iX Systems. iX Systems is the hardware storage provider you wish you already knew about. Whether you have a, you know, you need a new backup system for your home office or you need a petabyte scale storage array, iX Systems is the place to go. Go over to iXSystems.com slash TechSnap to let them know that we sent you there and check it out. They've got, they've always got things on their blog. They're also the maintainers and creators of the FreeNAS software as well as TrueOS. So you can tell they're they're working with the community. They've been in open source a long time. They know how to make these things work. So don't stop wasting your time. Don't try to buy a pre-configured server that you're going to have to wonder, is this really going to meet my client's needs? iX Systems makes custom servers powered by incredible Intel processors. They've got a huge staff of talented sales engineers who've built all kinds of systems. They know the motherboard that you need. They know how to make it fit in just the right case. They're going to build a better system than you or I can, frankly. And they're going to do it for less money. It's really an incredible value. I'm a huge fan of their work. The next time I need to write, don't be like, you know, I've, I've certainly had friends. It's a great thing to learn about. They build their own home system, home storage server. Before you know it, lost data. Don't make that mistake. Call iX Systems. Go over to their site, iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Let them know we sent you and go get yourself a brand new server. 
All right. With that, Dan, let's move on to our next story. What's next? Next is a huge blog post from Krebs on Security. And it talks about, in detail, great detail. We're not going to cover it all here. You really have to go and read it to get the, the full Oh, it's always worth it when it's Krebs. Um, his website was DDoSed a while back. And he spent some time figuring out what happened. And the title of, of his blog post is, Who is Anna Senpai, the Mirai Worm author? Oh, so, right. yeah. We've, that's previously been covered a, a fair it, bit on this program. It was. It was. Um, so way too, this is way too long to go into full detail. So I'm only going to cover a few of the interesting bits. So on September 22nd, 2016, this site was forced offline for nearly four days after it was hit with Mirai a malware strain that enslaves poorly trained Internet of Thing devices like wireless routers and security cameras into a botnet for use in large cyber attacks. Roughly a week after that assault, the individual who launched that attack, using the name Anna Senpai, released the source code for Mirai, spawning dozens of copycat attack armies online. So imagine you've just done this huge DDoS and then given all the source code away to other people to use. Chaos uh, ensues. It, it, script kiddies, that's what Yes, they are. right, exactly. After months of digging, Krebs on security is now confident to have uncovered Anna Senpai's real-life identity and the identity of at least one co-conspirator who helped to write and modify the malware. Before we go further, a few disclosures are probably in order. First, this is easily the longest story I've ever written on this blog. It's lengthy because I wanted to walk readers through my process of discovery, which has taken months to unravel. The details help in understanding the financial motivations behind Mirai and the botnet wars that have preceded it. Also, I realize there are a great many names to keep track of as you read this post, so I've included a glossary. Oh, that's amazing. Financial. I want to stress that point. The reasons for these attacks were financial, and we'll get into a little bit of, of how someone can possibly benefit financially from this sort of stuff. The story you're reading now is a result of hundreds of hours of research. At times, I was desperately seeking the missing link between seemingly unrelated people and events. Sometimes I was inundated with huge amounts of information, much of which intentionally false or misleading, and left a search for kernels of truth hidden amongst the dross. If you've ever wondered why it seems that so few Internet criminals are brought to justice, I can tell you that the sheer amount of persistence and investigative resources required to piece together who's done what to whom and why in the online era is tremendous. Now, this is true. It's just so difficult to figure out who someone is and what they're doing. Even when you're um, as talented as Krebs, right? I mean, there's just so much information. There's so much going on and there's so many ways to obfuscate it. Um, I- instead of identifying the individuals or groups, they give the groups and indi- or individuals names. For example, group A. They, they, identify, they identify group A as being, as having specific characteristics in their code, particular attack vectors, things like that. Um, sometimes they find out that group A and group C are actually the same group, just doing different things. But once you've kind of abstracted it a little bit, you can start to model what is it, how does this group behave? What are they doing? And then maybe make those kinds of recognitions. Yeah. It's easier to give them 
a name than it is to worry about. Lights have gone out. Yes, they have. All right, we'll get Keep that on going, us. yeah. All right. So, as noted in previous Krebs on Security articles, botnets like Mirai are used to knock individuals, businesses, government agencies, and nonprofits on, offline on a daily basis. These so-called distributed denial-of-service attacks are digital sieges in which an attacker causes thousands of hacked systems to hit a target with so much junk traffic that it falls over and remains unreachable by legitimate visitors. While DDoS attacks typically target a single website or internet host, they often result in widespread collateral internet disruption. So consider if they DDoSed your work website, you're a small retailer and you're selling batteries, for example, you're going to get no sales that whole day because no one can reach your website. Stuff like this is really serious. It it, it can do serious financial damage. A great deal of DDoS activity on the internet originates from so-called booter stressor services, which are essentially DDoS for higher services, which allow even unsophisticated users, read that as script kiddies, to launch high-impact attacks. And yeah, uh, seriously, it's script kiddies that pick this stuff up and run it. They really don't know what it is that they're running. Um, Sorry, they know what they're running but they couldn't have authored what it is that they're doing. The the real skill is in developing this sort of malware stuff, but running it requires very little effort. And you may not even, you know, you may be able to run it. You may have an idea of what you're trying to accomplish, but you may not even understand the full details. I had a, I had a coworker at work who filled up the entire Mm -hmm. state table of the firewall with a, you know, one bad command. So even when your intentions are good or if they're malicious, either way, like you can cause a lot of, a lot of real harm. Exactly. So, uh, I lost my place while well, DDoS attacks. Yeah. A great deal of original booter stressor down to here. So then he goes in to talk about the various variants of the Internet of Things botnet. And he mentions that Minecraft web servers were a frequent target. Now, that sounds weird. Why would you attack Minecraft? It's just people building things. Why bother them? The thing is... People subscribe to Minecraft servers. They they buy an account on them and start using them. And they may and, be less interested in you know maintaining it or upkeep than just playing Minecraft. Right. So what happens is he goes into a lot of detail about DDoS protection services. So you can buy DDoS protection from someone when you're getting DDoSed or to prevent future DDoS. So Minecraft customers would come under attack and how a competing DDoS protection company made threats directly preceding these attacks. So you've got two competing DDoS protection services. One is protecting a Minecraft web server, and the other is launching the attack. So this is plain old blackmail. This exactly. is extortion. This is you know, basic fraud. Um, Pay up or it, else. Yeah, it boils down to the classic, nice business you have there. It'd be a shame if anything <laughs> happened to it. They're just coming around, knocking on your door, knocking stuff onto the floor. Yeah, crude. You have the protection money. Exactly. So it all boils, yeah. Um, it goes into a lot of detail uh, of who is doing what, how this transpired, the evolution of the software, and how he started to identify who was what. And I'm not going to tell you how it ends. Um, 
because it's a huge article. It's it is a, a wonderful huge article. Read. It's a wonderful read. And please go and re- read this Krebs on Security post. Uh, the link will be in the show notes, and you are really going to enjoy it because it, it goes into much more detail than we have time for here in the show. Thank you, Thought. Thank you for that explanation. That's great. Uh, I guess with that, let's uh, kick it over to our next sponsor, which is Ting. Head over to Ting. What can I say? Ting makes mobile simple again. They, they want to make mobile make sense. There's no contracts or early termination fees. They have both GSM or CDMA. I mean, take this. I got my parents switched on Ting. They have huge monthly savings because you pay for what you use. Minutes, messages, megabytes. That's it. Don't get trapped into a big contract where you know that you have more minutes than you could possibly need. It just doesn't make sense when you have a service like Ting. Just go over, go go to their page, just click right here, go to rates. You'll see they have their savings calculator. You can log in, compare with your current service, or just use this fun menu right here. Everything starts at $6 a month. I mean, there's some taxes and fees that Ting can't control. They'd love to help you out there, but, uh, you know, Uncle Sam has to take his due. After that, it's just pay for what you use. You don't use minutes? You don't pay for minutes. You don't use messages? You don't pay for messages. If you're like me, let's see, there's Wi-Fi on the bus, there's Wi-Fi at home, there's Wi-Fi at work, there's Wi-Fi at the coffee shop, maybe there's Wi-Fi at the bar. Either way, Ting's there when I need it, and when I don't, I don't have to use it and I don't have to pay for it. At $6 a month, it also makes it really great if you just have, you know, maybe you're playing with an IoT dev kit, or you just want, you know, a backup phone that you keep in the truck it's for when you're out on the roads or, you know, you're, you're going camping and you just want a backup phone, you know that something happens to your main phone, Ting will be there, whether you need GSM or CDMA. Go to Ting, go to techsnap.ting.com. That lets us know that we sent you, that you're interested. Say it one more time, techsnap.ting.com. Head there today and uh, see how much you can save. All right, Dan, back to you. What's next? What's next is... A blog post of mine. Alan suggested that we bring it up on the show. I, I, I had no idea that it would even be interesting. But no, I think that's a great idea. I agree. When, once he mentioned it and said how we should present it, yeah, I thought I thought it was a good idea. I think it gives you so, a good chance to speak to something that uh, you know obviously you care about. So let's get started. We're going to talk about the TechSnap Career Challenge, and this challenge is uh, directed at all our listeners. So. The, the genesis of this was at the Grace Hopper Conference. And if you've never been to the Grace Hopper Conference, it's the largest collection, it's the largest gathering of women technologists I've ever seen. It's absolutely huge. Oh, that's awesome. I met people from so many different technology areas, uh, medicine, robotics, software design. I met a woman who was on a team that designed chips that go into apple phones oh wow so when was this um this was november okay november december something like that uh not very long ago um i was there on behalf of the freebsd foundation uh to give a talk about how to contribute to open source software oh very nice and that that was a lot of fun the 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 talk had a lot of people who were um just starting out and wondering how to further their career. The premise of the talk was open source software, you can learn on your own, it's free of charge, it doesn't cost you anything, you can do it in your free time, um, and you can get very valid usable skills uh, for 
your future career. I mean, that almost sells itself, right? That you don't need an expensive license. You don't have to try to get the student copy. It's all free. It's yours. No. And there's help available to help you. You can reach out and get expert advice from people who've been doing this for years. And I think that goes a long way. You know, I think sometimes people get the bad impression, less so of the FreeBSD project, of course, but, you know, that the internet can be filled with trolls or other people or that, you know, when you don't know something, it can be hard to ask those questions. So it's nice to be reassured that there's a community excited to teach the next generation. Yes, and we covered trolls. Uh, The short answer was don't feed the trolls, ignore them. If people are being horrible on a project, find a better project because there are better projects. I like that message. Um, Because of the nature of the, the conference, it's an academic conference, there are a great many students and many of them hadn't actually launched their careers yet, but they knew they loved technology and they knew that they wanted to get involved with it. And a wonderful story was told to me by a Google employee who used to tell their trainees or students how to find their tech passion. And that's the whole basis of this blog post. So let, let me read, read through uh, my paraphrasing of what this wonderful Google employee told me. So, the following is a relatively cheap project you can do in your spare time, weekends, and evenings. For the following tasks, you want to blog about each step in sufficient detail for someone else to duplicate what you were doing. Go and find an old computer. Get it working. Add hard drives, network, etc. Install an OS on it. Naturally, I recommend FreeBSD. Of course. Connect this computer to the internet. Install a web server, Nginx, Apache, whatever you want to use. Write a small program for this web server. It's absolutely not important what this program does. It's not important what language you choose. Just choose one and get it working. Make this program publicly available on the Internet. In other words, you have a little service running on this computer. Now, after you've done all that and you've been blogging, this will take you quite some time. Go back and read your blog from start to finish. And as you read this blog, remember how you felt when you're doing each part of this step. The one that raises the most interest in you, the one that makes you feel the best, the one that raises the most emotions, those are the parts of technology that you really want to start looking at closer. So... During this, you might find that you like hardware, that you like putting together computers. You might find that networking is your passion. It might be the software engineering that you like. It could be that blogging itself is what you really like. It may may turn out that writing is what you want to do, writing about technology. And you might discover that system administration is really what you want to do. And all of this can be done in your spare time, probably free, all in the comfort of wherever you want to do it. You can do it from home. You can do it while on holiday. And students can do it in, in winter break and spring break, something like that. But basically, do this, and it should really help you figure out what you want to concentrate on. And a little bit of time spent now well, it might save you a whole lot of heart, heartache later on when you find out you don't actually like what you've chosen. I think that's what you – it reminds me of that um, – like the – the classic high school counselor line of, you know, if you had all the money in the world, you didn't need to work, you could just do what you wanted to do. What is it that you want to do? And that can be a hard Mm -hmm. question to answer. And I think you're right that, you know, being in the trenches, kind of feeling day to day, like this got me really excited. That that part was kind of a chore. It was interesting to do. I learned, but you know, I don't necessarily want to do it again. But then you find those pieces that you're like, wow, 
And a lot of times you may not even realize, you know, you might think that it's interesting, but you didn't realize how interesting or how much you might really want to keep doing it. And I think, you know, and I think just kind of talking about, like, I think Chris kind of ran into that doing sysadmin work for years and then starting this network. Now this is what he does, content creation full time. And so even if you've done some of these things before, you might find a new subset of passion that you're interested in. I agree. Exactly. So here's what I'm challenging our listeners to do. Take this challenge, blog about it, figure out what it is you want to do, and then send us your blog URL and tell you what you got out of the challenge. I'm really interested to hear if people suddenly figure out that, holy shit, I thought I was going to be a software developer. I really want to be a systems admin now. Something like that. Just let us know what happens. And this is even for people who have only ever had one career, if you've only ever been been a software developer and you've never done these things that I've outlined in the blog post, do them. You may find a much more interesting career than what you're doing now. I think that's a good idea. And especially in today's um, you know DevOps world where there are more roles, it seems like a good exercise for anyone who's you know using computers, likes to think that they're competent with computers, wants to go to the next level. So this yep. does make me kind of curious. How did you get started in your current career world? Was it something like this or a different path? I think I was 14 years old. I read an elementary electronics magazine that talked about computers. And by computers, I'm talking about Z80s and PDP-11s, <laughs> PDP-8s, yes. stuff like that. And the that old got big me boy. interested. Yes. That got me interested. And so I knew I was going to take a computer science degree. And I did that at university. And I was out of university for about 13 years when I then started getting into sysadmin. And uh, I was a software developer. And then I started doing sysadmin at home by working on open source. Oh, really? So you were, at that time, you were a professional developer, not necessarily mm-hmm. doing much, much sysadmin work at, at work yep. or that kind of thing. Yep. I, there was some sysadmin at work in terms of, you know, I'd be installing software and stuff like that, but it it wasn't a Unix sysadmin type thing that I was doing. And systems administration was a very small part of my day job. I see, right. Um, and then just gradually, it was a hobby, and it's what I did, and it's what I blogged about. And eventually, I developed skills that became more and more part of my day job. And eventually, I was hired as a sysadmin somewhere, and then... That's I think awesome. This is now my second or third uh, full-time systems administration job, and it's good. I still do a little bit of coding, sure, usually right. in, a skill in that Perl you know. or shell scripts, mm-hmm. but it's not my whole day. I'm kind of that makes me curious if I can put you more on the spot here. Uh, what do you like more about the sysadmin lifestyle? Is it just like you know the hands-on with the servers, making the systems work? Development can often be a little more abstract, a little more removed from, you know, production. It, I think it's the getting the systems running so that they require next to no day-to-day administration. Sure. It, it's setting up and getting, it, getting them running and having, having nothing to do with them. They just run and run and run. And you know you um, can take pride in that, right? Like, this is, I've tuned this, it's set up correctly, configuration management is done. It reboots, it comes back, everything works. Basically, all I do to my servers is um, 
is software updates. Update the applications, update the OS, and reboot them, get them going again. Now, you mentioned IX Systems earlier on, one of our sponsors. One of my servers is from IX Systems. It's probably about 10 years old, if not more. Wow. And I have not seen it in that entire time. Not since I shipped it off to somewhere in Texas, where it's been sitting there running freshports.org for the past 10 years solid. That is amazing. I I would be curious what its uptime is. uh, Uptime varies because when I upgrade the OS, I always reboot. Sure, right. Even any security patches that come through, I almost always reboot the server just to make sure everything's completely clean. Um, the up the uptime has gotten fairly high on it, but it it, it uh, I don't want to say I've never had a hardware problem, right? Sure. Uh, because that would be tempting fate. But we did replace the battery backup unit in it once. Well, that is a ringing endorsement. I think that's a natural segue to our final sponsor for the day, which is DigitalOcean. You know, if you're if you're taking Dan's challenge. If you don't have the resources at home, maybe you don't have a spare laptop or a spare machine. I mean, it's very easy to get started, but it's it's also easy to go spin up a droplet on DigitalOcean. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. You'll get a $10 discount code. That's good for two whole months if you choose the $5 droplet size. What is DigitalOcean? It's the simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easiest way to spin up a cloud server. Did you know you can do it in under 55 seconds? Yep, that's right. Under 55 seconds and then bam, your own Linux server or FreeBSD in the cloud. And there's where you can do it. You can start your blog, you know, install WordPress or something better, maybe uh, something like Hugo, a, a static blog hosting site. Configure Nginx, configure fail to ban, work on your security principles. They've got data centers all over New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt, all using KVM hypervisor. 40 gigabit Ethernet right into that hypervisor. Plus, once you've used their simple, intuitive control panel, you're going to start wondering about all the other services. Why isn't my bank this simple? Compared to some other cloud hosting providers we won't name here, you do not need a special certificate or a special degree just to figure out the UI and the API. They've got a dead simple UI and a dead simple API. That isn't to say it doesn't have all the control you need. Heck, here at JB, a lot of our stuff is automated with their wonderful UI. Go check it out. Promo code SNAPOcean, digitalocean.com. What do we got in the feedback today, Dan? In the feedback, we have one of my favorite topics, backups. Oh, in this rack behind very me, important. In this rack behind me, you'll find uh, an SDLL, SDLT tape server an LTO4 tape server, and a Bacula box uh, with about 27 terabytes of backups in it. So I'm big on backups. That is amazing. You have not one but multiple tape servers in your home? That's incredible. Yes. Uh, actually, I lied. There's three tape libraries in this rack. <laughs> There's an old DLT tape library, which I'm going to have to put to use for wiping old tapes soon. That's funny. Uh, At work the other day, we were just talking about we had some big storage needs, and no one had considered tape, and someone brought it up, and uh, that might be the way that we go. Some people say people still use tape, and yes, people still use tape. It's a big business. So, on to the question. J.H. writes in, Berrios or Bacula? Hey, guys, 
I was told you were the backup masters. Well, not quite, but close. We'll work on it. So here are my questions. I have two free NAS servers, nice choice, with several jails on each and one going to be off-site. Should I put a file daemon in each jail or one per NAS? Should I rather have multiple backup jobs with a storage daemon on each or use ZFS and use and ZFS send via SSH between the NAS? What backup repetition would you suggest for a normal household? And should I rather use Bacula or Berrios? Well, let's start with the last question first. As a Bacula developer, I suggest you use Bacula. Oh, I did not realize you're a Bacula developer. That's interesting. So you do take backups seriously. Yeah, I do. Now, to be honest, I was this close to deploying Amanda when someone said, hey, have you seen Bacula? You should have a look look at it. This is about 10 or 11 years ago. And I looked at it, and I really liked the way they used a catalog to record everything that's backed up. Mm-hmm. The only problem was they used MySQL. Fail. I'm sorry. That's, that's, that's not good enough. So what we did is we... Is that for the catalog, you mean? The, 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 yes, okay, the catalog. Uh, what we did is we created a backula, uh, sorry, a Postgres backend for Bacula, and that's what I use now. Oh, that's and awesome. that's what I recommend everyone else does u- uses as well, because you're not going to have as many problems as when you use that other database, so we won't mention which one. So you mean anyway, Oracle? That's the one you're talking about? I wouldn't use Oracle with this. I, I believe there may be an Oracle backend or a catalog module written for it, but I don't know. I don't know. We won't talk about either. So... The first question, I think I can answer all your questions by explaining how I back up my jails. What I do is I do, is you're, you're running ZFS, so am I. So what I do is I do a system snapshot recursively from user jails on everything, and I call it snapshot for backup. And then what I do is I create a file set, which is based on excuse me, all the snapshots I've just taken. And then I do an incremental backup of that snapshot. Now, it's important to use a snapshot for the backup because files may change during your backup. Uh, If you take a snapshot, you literally have a snapshot in time and you can back that up. So what I've linked in the show notes here is a link to my... GitHub gist where it shows you three parts. The first part is the bit that does the uh, creation of the snapshot. Um, then it runs through all the jails, figures out the man point, does a snapshot of that. And there are three actions that the script can do. It can create a snapshot, it can list the backup directories, or it can destroy the snapshot. Nice. And you run this as a before, after, and during yeah, it is very clever. I got some help with Alan when I was figuring this out early on. And this is just so, a shell script, so it should work on... It's just a shell script that'll run on any reasonable host with <laughs> bin slash sh. Awesome. Uh, and, well, he's running FreeNAS, so this will just work straight out of the box. Now, you may want to, if you look at the file set itself, basically it runs a script and says, give me the list of stuff that you've backed up. Um, but this is this is what I would do. It makes your backups much bigger. 
but it does them all in one and you're sure that you get all the jails and if you add a new jail it'll automatically be included in the backup and this serves me well and so that would kind of uh, answer his his one of his questions there where he was wondering if he should kind of handle the backups with a daemon or agent per jail this would do it at the host level this does it at the host level and you don't have to have anything in the jails whatsoever nice. the, the jails are totally independent that seems like a clean way to approach it now um even when I'm backing up my mail jail, I run it on the host. Uh, the mailder is mounted in its own ZFS file system, and I snapshot that and back up that. And when you're backing up ZFS, use snapshots always. Even if you're doing a Z- ZFS send-receive, it's still a snapshot. So if you, when you're using Bacula, and you will want to use Bacula... <laughs> Use a snapshot. It's much easier than doing anything else. Right. And, the, and then you know then, too, that uh, things won't change mid-backup, right? You've got that frozen in-time snapshot right there. Yes. It's read-only as well. So oh, nothing, nothing will change. Um, as for backup repetition, uh, my goal at the moment is three years of backups at all times. Uh, I'm getting kind of full on – short on space. Things are getting kind of full, so I may have to adjust that. Or get more tapes. Um, Always more tapes. I I would go with the regular, uh, with the default um, schedule that comes with Bacula, which is basically an incremental every day, a differential on uh, on the Sundays, and a full on the first Sunday of every month. Um, that should suit you. Um, make sure that you keep those for a reasonable length of time, so you always have at least two sets of full backups at all times because if you do a full today and you wipe out the fulls from yesterday while you're doing that and the fulls today fail, you've got no backup. So take your backups somewhere else as well. Once you've done a full, take them off site. Put them somewhere where it can't be damaged. Um, oh, I'm talking about tapes, but if you're backing up to another FreeNAS server, right. that should just work as well. Um, and yes, if you get enough room on that remote FreeNAS server, what you could do, theoretically, is snapshots on your local one, ZFS send to the remote one, and then you could actually do backups from there. Yeah, that gets complicated. But there's a lot of options. It's a flexible system. And don't forget, always make sure you test your backups as well. Backups are worthless. Restores are priceless. There you go. That's perfect. Well said, Dan. Thank you. Anything else to add for this one? Nothing there, but if uh, JH has more questions, please write back. Please write it in. We love your feedback. It gives us a lot of fun things to talk about here and uh, keep it up. All right. So uh, our next piece of feedback here talks about that malware in the browser story we covered a week or two back. Yes. Uh, I don't know which show it was. We did two shows in one day, but it was, it was one of the previous. It was a good day. So Brent Kirlin writes in. Asking about malware in the browser. Ah, here's our answer. TechSnap 302, the last show. You mentioned an unfilterable malware that is hosted in the browser. I thought I would share with you what I teach my family, clients, and and such. I call it fail for the win. And it's a simple method to defeat most phishing attacks. If presented with an unwarranted or suspicious login prompt, I tell people to put in a known bad password like nope. A real login page will reject the bad password, but a phishing site will usually send you on to the real URL where they they will be authenticated with a session or cookie. Hope this helps. 
that's kind of clever. That but is a kind of clever idea. I don't know if it's... I had ever- some... Go yeah, on. I, I had some dubious thoughts about it initially because it, 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 if it says nope and you go... If it says bad password and you say, oh, okay, that, I must be in the right place if it's rejecting me. Or no, if you say, oh, it rejected me, that's right. Now I'll log in for sure. So what the malware will then start doing is just always rejecting your password no matter what you enter, thereby right. asking you to yeah, enter. Yeah, it'd be pretty simple. Password. They'll just reject the first time. People are always, almost always going to try that second time, right? So, Or, or, or just reject always. Never pass them on to the real place. Mm-hmm. Oh, but then that might alert you to the fact that you've been compromised, and they don't want to know that you. They don't want you to know that. I think this does highlight. Like, it, it seems like a pretty good suggestion. Yeah, but it kind of goes to show that, like, in the everyday user's mind, it, it can be pretty hard to keep track of this. And you may be suspicious, but the more times you see it, the, the higher the chances you're just going to get hit by one of these things. So it's nice yeah. to have some like common sense rules so you can at least try. Yes. All right, and that brings us to our rockin' roundup. What's our first story? The first story is me. I challenged on Twitter, oh, about two weeks ago, shortly after after the first podcast. I said, I will, will wear a different T-shirt for each show. If you catch me with a repeat, I'll donate $100 to something to determine later because I'm not really sure what it is. I might take, might take suggestions from the chat room or from the person who catches me. But basically, keep track of what T-shirts I'm wearing. And if you see the same one twice during the show, then... Call them out. Yeah, We want to hear about it. Call me out. Oh, I like this. This is a good challenge. I might have to... That's a lot of that's a lot of t-shirts though, Dan. You think you've got the arsenal for it? Or are you going to have to maybe like bring in some back stock, go to the storage locker? Oh yeah. You see Oh, you can't see me pointing. But over there, behind the a, rack, behind the beautiful rack. There there is a chest of drawers. It is full of rolled up t-shirts. Uh, all right. Well, that's a great challenge. I am yep. uh Many looking years forward of going to, this. to conferences. So that means they should all be kind of interesting shirts, too. It's not just like your run-of-the-mill, plain color T-shirt. Flight Aware. Oh, yeah. So what's Flight Aware? Do you want to just tell us what that is? Flight Aware is a wonderful website. If you ever want to know where your plane is or where where it's going or where it's been, use Flight Aware. Oh, cool. So it'll just show you, like, real-time information, historical. Real-time information running on FreeBSD. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. All right. I love it. All right. What do we got Next. 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 Oh, no. Amanda Riso. Oh, where'd it go? There we Amanda go. Riso. It is a straight stick going through a curved hole. And this is how malware bypassing antiviruses works. And is really very clever. But if I had the straight stick, I would pick it up and just shove it horizontally through the hole. But that defeats <laughs> yes, right. the that defeats the illustration. Sorry, chat room. This is not very useful to you. It's a visual. You're going to have to load the show notes. I like it, though, because it kind of shows you about the the time dimension and how important that is, right? Like, it's not – if you think about it statically, yeah, it's not the wrong shape. But if you think about the dynamics of it and how the system evolves with time, you, that's what makes it work. You have to think differently. If you think straightforward, you're not going to get in. But if you think about, well, what if we tried this? Exactly. And it's all those, right, that's the, that's the path attackers know will be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. It's the little things you mm-hmm. haven't thought about. 
well, no one even uses the system for that. Why would why would you yep. why would anyone yep. be knocking on that yep. port? Yep. Turns out uh, someone is. I have a feeling that QA testers uh, yes. eventually will exactly. come into their own. All right, and then next up, we've got some uh, an, an interesting document from Google. Yes, Google goes into their security design overview, and they actually talked about um, a lot of detail on how they do things and what is where and how it works and the different layers. And the rationale behind those layers, too, which I thought I really appreciated that. They have storage, user identity, hardware infrastructure, stuff like that. It makes for very good reading. This would be a great um, full story, but, well, sadly, we have too many full stories at the moment. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just have a, a read of that later. Or, you know, you have a, a security engineer friend show it their way. And it's good for a lot of the different levels, too, like security experts, sysadmins, or beginners. They've got some, like, they've got a CIO-level summary right at the top. So even if you're just a little bit familiar, there's a lot to learn. All right, up next from the CBC, what do we got? Uh on the CBC, they're talking about problems with criminal cases, public and police safety being put at risk by IT failures. This is what RCMP documents say. But basically, uh, the RCMP are provided with IT services from another division of the Canadian government. And they're not very happy with the service that they're getting. And they go into a few things about what's wrong and how things are not working the way they want them to. And it makes it interesting to see why maybe your government department is not working the way you want it to, because another government department is not working the way they want it to either. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, IT is frequently seen as a cost center or you know yes. something you have to deal with, but it really is important to the operational health of your organization. And then when you are yep. the government providing services to the whole the whole country, it becomes doubly so important. Yep. Indeed. Indeed. All right. The 32-bit dog ate 16 million kids CS homework. This sounds like a perfect excuse or the worst thing that could happen right when that homework is due. Tell us more. Yep. Yep. So, any student progress from 9.19 to to 10.33 a.m. on Friday was not saved, explained the embarrassed CTO of the educational nonprofit code.org and unfortunately cannot be recovered. Oh, man. Wow. That's horrible news. So basically that's about 45 minutes worth of homework for thousands of students that get lost. So what happened? This is embarrassing. They try. They overflowed a 32-bit number. No. Ugh. In 2017 or 2016. Either way. The database could only store 4 billion rows of coding activity. And we didn't realize we were running up to the limit and the table got full. So now they've gone to a 64-bit index, which is should, should hold up to 18 quintillion rows of information. I hope they also put a monitor on that so that, uh, you know, in 100 years when they've filled that up, they'll, they'll know this time and maybe they can catch it when it's at 90% full. Yeah, I haven't read what database they're using, but yeah, it's a, it's a pain. Uh, it's something easily overlooked. Yeah, I'm sure exactly. they thought it, you know, nobody's ever going to need more than 64. Yeah. It'll be a great problem to have if we can become that popular. Well, it, it happened and people, it happened. people it are happened. relying on you now. People might might have criticized you way back then for choosing a 64-bit value, they won't be now. No, they will not. 
Okay. Oh, this is a great story. Up next, we've got uh, the question asked on Cora over here. Did Pixar accidentally delete Toy Story 2 during production? This sounds incredible. Now, I have heard this story before, and it is true. But I've also heard uh, a generalization that any headline that ends in a question mark can be safely answered with no. (laughs) Just straight up no. No. So what happened is they did accidentally delete the movie, and they did recover almost all of it. But afterwards, the story got rewritten, so none of what it is that they recovered is actually the movie that was released. I see. So the data so they, retention story, the the desperate hope to get the, the copy back and you know having it at someone's off-site location, that's all true. It just didn't true. end up mattering. It, it never wound up in the movie. None of it wound up in the movie because they completely rewrote the story. Wow. Um, it's still a yeah, fascinating that, story and about oh, you, know, you can just imagine that happening, especially if this was kind of early days for them. So even less resources to work with. Uh, it, I can imagine that week or so that they spent recovering would have been just terrible. Such stress. And then to have it all tossed out. Yep. Uh, heart wrenching. I'm sure they have not let it happen again, or at least we haven't heard about it. Okay. Oh, we've got uh, a Heartbleed report. So what is this? Heartbleed is a security bug in the OpenSSL cryptography library, which is a widely used implementation of the transport security layer, transport layer security, sorry, TLS protocol. This bug was introduced into the software in 2012 and was publicly disclosed in April 2014. Now, Wes, answer me a question. Sure thing. How long ago was April 2014? Wow, that is almost three years. It is, isn't it? So you would think that most people would be patched. Sure. For the you, heart, you maybe, heartbleed. Maybe you even heartbleed. upgraded a major OS version by this time, right? There's a lot of things that could have changed and yep. should have changed in that time. Yep. Plenty yep. of time to patch your S. Lots of time. So what they did is this report goes through the top countries, the top services, the organizations, and the protocols that are vulnerable, that are still not patched. One of the major domains not patched looks like Amazon AWS. Maybe I'm reading this wrong, but that really does look like... And they also found 120,000 expired SSL certificates. And the list of top operating systems which are still vulnerable is very interesting. But we won't go into that. This is a little depressing, so, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I'm glad they're doing is. this, and they've like they put they've put together a good. The graphs are pretty easy to read. It's a nice little summary. So hopefully, we can, people can go. Audience members go out and uh, maybe use shame a little bit. Just uh, tell yes. people there's a better way, yes. and that the security of them and their users relies on keeping things secure. There's no way. There's no reason for stuff to be unpatched this long. It's just embarrassing. Now you're just script kitty bait, right? Like <laughs> things yep. that have already been patched. You just the low hanging yep. fruit. Yep, that's disappointing. Get All right, on to our final roundup story. The final roundup story. So, you've been caught doing things wrong. You've been publicly shamed about it, and then you get caught doing it wrong again. That's rather embarrassing. And what's happened in this case is Semantic was already on probation 
for bad HTTPS certificates, well, SSL certs. But now they found at least 108 semantic cer- certificates which threaten no. the integrity of the encrypted web. Uh, again? So a researcher has uns- unearthed evidence showing that three browser-trusted certificate authorities owned and operated by Semantic improperly issued more than 100 unvalidated TLS certificates. In some cases, these certificates made it possible to spoof HTTPS protected websites. Say that three times fast. Yeah. HTTPS, HTTPS, HTTPS. There we go. So, yeah. And it's important to note here that the whole system of TLS, SSL that we use, it it really places a lot of trust in these these root CAs, right? People who should be basically the whole integrity of the system depends on them not doing exactly this. Yep. Um, some browser, some browser manufacturers, developers have started unlisting various uh, CAs who are not doing a good job, and that's really what you have to do. That's the only way to fight back against this: is to say, "Hey, listen." We're not going to trust your certificates anymore, which means your customers are not going to trust your website when they go to it. If you don't get that little green lock in the Chrome bar, then yeah, right. Yep. And that that's how this works because it, it the, the issue of certificate, it's not correct. And someone winds up trusting it and anything could basically happen. It's, do it right. CAs are one of the most important things yes and with this like open model really all we have to fight back is like yes we we are just not going to trust you anymore so it's nice to see you know people like google they they, it seems like they mean business right they're ready to if this keeps happening they're ready to say no we're just not going to trust you two words let's encrypt yes i love let's encrypt i'm so glad they're they're doing what they're doing the Mm -hmm. the whole ca Mm -hmm. industry it was really kind of stagnant and they've shaken it up i read a very good uh uh, blog post by Peter Wem describing how the FreeBSD infrastructure is secured or, or how it uses Let's Encrypt and how everything is done centrally and then things are um, pulled or pushed, I can't remember which, out to the various I see. So there's like so. one management server that can get all those and then it goes and distributes and configures them. Right. Right. And that's what I'm planning to do here for this stuff behind me. Oh, uh, I really like that approach. I think uh, if we can uh, remember here, we should throw that in the show notes. One day. Mm-hmm. One day. All right. Well, I think that uh, that brings us to the close, unless you have any uh, final comments on this one. No, I can't think of anything I've done this week that's worthy of mention. But All right. Well, then, do, in, until do next the time. Do the two challenges. Yes, do, do the, the two, two challenges. challenges we, talk. we expect T- feedback. We want to see how this goes. T-shirts and tech passion. Figure it out. One is maybe more important than the other, but we'll let you decide that. Yep. All right. Thanks, Wes. This has been episode 303 of TechSnap. If you'd like to see more, head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can find the back archives of this show and all the other fine shows on the network. If you'd like to find more uh, from me and Dan, Dan is at TechSnapDan on Twitter, and I am at Wes Payne. See you next week. (laughs) 